Welcome to The Culture Bar, a panel discussion podcast exploring, dissecting and shedding light on important topics in the arts and music world which matter to you. Hello, I'm Henry Southern. In this podcast, we will be considering the future of international cultural exchange. And today, we are delighted to be joined by Roy Luxford, Planning and Operations Director at the Edinburgh International Festival, Nadia Race, Director of International Engagement at the British Museum, and our very own Rafi Gokewal, Harrison Parrott's Head of Tours and Projects. Welcome, everyone. Hello. 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 Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us. In order to steer this discussion, it'll be interesting to know how your organisations are tackling arguably the three most significant elements that are affecting the arts today, both positively and negatively, those being the COVID-19 pandemic, the climate change debate and Brexit. <laughs> I'm going to kick off with you, Roy. International oh. is in your organisation's title and the pandemic will have clearly affected your planning for the Edinburgh International Festival. What, could you tell us what the current state of play is and how you're looking towards the future? Yes, um, so for the festival, um, we obviously cancelled the festival this year. Um, and whilst we have an ongoing programme throughout the year in Edinburgh of different uh, artistic uh, enterprises, obviously the August festival is the centre point and indeed is the point at which uh, we welcome artists and audiences and also we generate our income uh, in August. So the consequence for us this year is obviously no festival, so no artists, no audiences and no earned income. Um, so we had to cancel at the point at which we were just about to launch the annual festival. And so we did, like a lot of organisations, uh, a complicated backflip to pause all of those plans and preparation, some of which, as you'll all know, take many years to actually bring to fruition. Um, and to um, really uh, go into this hiatus like the rest of the industry. Uh, one thing we did quite quickly was to extend an invitation to the artists who we had invited to make up this year's programme into the next uh, festival. But of course, there's still an awful lot of uncertainty around how we might be able to operate in the future, what does a, a, a live performing arts presentation look like? And indeed, uh, our reach is uh, across, I think we had 40 nationalities represented across about three and a half thousand artists um, for this year's incarnation. So how do we actually make new arrangements with those individuals and all the very practical things around travel, transporting large, whether they be opera companies or dance companies, theatres, orchestras, how do the mechanics of international touring actually uh, still exist with so much certainty around? And as we, um, in all of our spheres, I'm sure we're dependent on multiple territories and ongoing engagements from city and country to country. And an awful lot of those um, touring plans are underpinned both by co-production and commissioning arrangements. So there's a very complex ecology spread uh, throughout the globe in terms of any one program uh, that actually comes together. So um, I think we're still in uh, a place of hiatus in terms of how we consider next year. I think like everybody on the panel, we are probably becoming scenario planners um, alongside the day job of being programmers and curators and um, wanting to bring artists and audiences to connect. So I think there are some real challenges. I would also say 
whilst we perhaps wouldn't have wanted it for these reasons, it does give us a moment just to think about the models that we have in play, why we do certain things in a certain way, and to challenge those. And particularly with um, uh, the notion of sustainability, there's some serious uh, carbon emission targets that we uh, all need to embrace and accelerate in terms of meeting them. So maybe it is also a good moment just to pause and, and challenge the, the status quo and the thinking. I would say, though, internationalism is at our DNA. The festival was founded um, uh, in the aftermath of World War II. I don't think that is going to change. So the challenge for us as uh, the presenters of the festival is how do we make a model work going forward with these new and very impactful considerations at play? Certainly, I think that resonates, I'm sure, with a lot of people on, on the panel here, balancing a collective belief or international cultural exchange with also responsibility for the environment. And there's lots of interesting points to pick up on there. But Nadia, with the British Museum, so I, I understand sort of galleries were allowed to open uh, yesterday at the time of recording, um, and museums as well. What state of play the British Museum and how have things been affecting your organisation? So, Will, yeah, you're absolutely right uh, with, with the announcement that the museums and galleries can open from early July. Some of them have, and actually National Gallery uh, opened yesterday. We are still working on that. Uh, the museums are a little bit more complicated than uh, galleries, uh, but we are making preparations and we hope to be able to do that soon over the next few weeks. Excellent. And just picking up a little bit from what Roy was saying about um, internationalism and, and the cultural exchange and just also our collective responsibility for that. I think, am I right in thinking that only 1% of the British Museum's collection is actually on display? And so do you think there'll be a shift less from these big grand scale international blockbuster exhibitions and more actually utilising what's the 99% that's in storage? I think they're actually two, uh, two separate different questions. Uh, it, it is correct, yes, uh, that uh, a small percentage of um, uh, our collection is on display but that is what you actually see um, in galleries, in cases, on the walls. The actual, there is so much more of the collection that visitors uh, engage with, and that is we have more than, let's say, 5,000 loans alone in the UK and across the world at any one time. We do have study rooms where scholars and general public can actually come and look at specific uh, pieces of the collection that are not on display. Uh, we also have handling desks where you can actually go and handle collection. You can actually hold an axe that was made 350,000 years ago in your hand. So there are collections actually in different spheres. We also have um, uh, more than 2 million prints and drawings. And these objects are extremely sensitive, light sensitive, so that they cannot actually be on display all the time. So sometimes when you hear the, the idea of that something is once in a lifetime opportunity to see, it might be simply because of that, that we have to be very careful how long we actually display a printed drawing for to make sure that actually future generations uh, can actually enjoy them and see them and study them. So that is about the collection. In terms of uh, blockbusters, I think the, the blockbusters and the cultural exchange that usually go with it is extremely important. The, the blockbuster title, I think, almost hides how much uh, hard work, research and scholarship uh, goes behind it and exchange with partners around the world. They're very important exhibitions. They usually take several years of research, uh, getting new knowledge, and then exhibition is just one way of sharing that new knowledge uh, with our audiences. We publish books, uh, we speak at conferences, 
uh, you know, we teach, but actually having an exhibition is probably the biggest way of engaging the broadest audience um, possible. So the, the exchange and the internationalism, very much like Roy said, it is actually, actually at the core of what we do, because what the museum's collection has is actually spans the human achievement across the globe and millennia. So it is actually natural for us to think in international ways. Um, I think obviously with, with challenges that we have in environment, we have to look at the models as to how we do these things. And it is possible that we will look more at moving from uh, shorter run exhibitions and more frequently changing to actually longer runs. So at the moment, it is typical to have a, an exhibition for about three months. And then with our very nimble uh, uh, you know, collection care colleagues, they're able to install and deinstall. One could actually have three or four such exhibitions per year. What we're probably going to see more, and we're all learning about it and going to actually test it, is to have exhibitions of a longer run, perhaps six months, but actually uh, share, uh, changing less frequently in order to enable audiences to actually see it. Because if you have new dynamic of visiting the exhibitions where um, COVID protocols are such that we can't actually have absolutely packed galleries, which we usually see with blockbuster exhibitions, we will actually have to extend the run to make sure that as many people uh, as they would like to see it have a chance to do so. That's very interesting. And also, I know Francis Morris Tate was advocating on Front Row recently slower art and again, having a very similar strategy to yourself in longer runs of um, exhibitions and actually allowing people to have a more meaningful um, time experiencing those different exhibition pieces, which have been, as you say, labored over for several years by academics to put together. Uh, we have noticed that uh, actually recently, because when museums around the world closed and went into lockdown, four of the British Museum exhibitions had to go into dark. Three of them reopened since. And what's been very interesting is that our colleagues are telling us how the average length of stay has increased. And that is probably for two reasons, because there obviously few people in galleries, so you feel like you have more time, you're not actually blocking anybody's view. Uh, but also people are really hungry for something. They really wanted to go back to the museums and wanted to spend time there. So th there are actually some positive news out of it. Absolutely. And, and Rafi, do you think there are some synergies here with international touring so with your own house in Parrot work with symphony orchestras ballet companies virtual reality you name it and this is not just a plug for what house and Parrot does of course um <laughs> but the idea of moving from a role of linear touring and shorter cultural exchange to actually more enduring cultural exchange uh absolutely um i think that's uh, gonna that is the most important thing and just very similar to what other colleagues were saying is that um internationalism is in our DNA as well in HPM. That's what we stand for for such a long time. And uh, we have done in the past many projects that are uh, that were enduring and long-term. Uh, and this uh, crisis had uh, made us rethink and to adapt in different ways. And it's not only questioning us, but the, I think the whole arts community and how we are doing things and how we should do it, how we should rethink it, and how we can, in some ways, create a, um, a, a platform for more meaningful exchanges. Um, and whether the model that uh, the, we have been accustomed to over so many years, whether that will work, um, it's, it's now clear that it won't work. And uh, I completely believe the project itself, the story itself, and engagement with local 
um, uh, with the local communities rather than a whistle-stop tours or is, is no longer going to be here, especially for various reasons, including the climate change issue? Well, with climate change in mind, um, Roy, I know in Scotland, well, the UK government has an ambitious target to be uh, carbon neutral by 2015. And Scotland, I think, are trying to jump the gun on that. I think it's by 2045 and has incremental targets in advance of that. How is that implementing in, um, your planning at all over the next few years? Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct. And in fact, um, by 2030, Scotland has declared a 70% reduction on the 1990 levels. And the city of Edinburgh, um, is aiming, well, has declared that it will go net zero by 2030. So an even more ambitious timeline than the rest of the UK. So I think we really do need to embrace uh, our carbon footprint in terms of uh, accurate data collection so we know what the full starting point is, but also credible carbon reduction plans um, which uh, should also be pegged to expenditure. So one can also determine the, the, the financial costs, but also the carbon cost of any particular trip or piece of activity that we are undertaking. Now, of course, it's not just the organisation that needs to do this. We also need to use our position and our platform to persuade, um, and particularly persuade the huge numbers of audiences that are interested in the presentations we put together. So whilst we can um, uh, in manipulate the areas that we are in control of, we also need to use our position to uh, persuade audiences to behave in a different way in the way that they come to engage uh, with the artists that we've issued an invitation to. But I think also for us, the festival as the inviter, uh, we need to look at how we can encourage artists not to just uh, take the flight, which is probably the easiest and sadly um, often the cheapest route. But can we encourage um, either through persuasion or an incentive within some of the arrangements we make with them to take a more viable uh, option? Now, I think we all understand that if you fly from mainland Europe to Edinburgh, it's very quick. If you take the train, it may actually be over two days, uh, longer or shorter, depending on uh, exact uh, departure points. So how can we accommodate that within uh, the schedule that we're putting together with artists? And how can we um, make good use of that time? And if it's an additional um, time to come to the festival, how long should an artist or an invitation exist for? And should we be trying to grow uh, those relationships much in the way that uh, Rafi uh, referenced uh, a moment ago? Um, I think, um, you know, I know of companies who have decided against to fly to any engagement within Europe. Um, so obviously that has a very real impact. I think um, uh, we mentioned earlier just the pace of travel and it's just just because you can do five concerts in five different cities in a week should there be a conscious decision not to and I think uh, with the festival we certainly will be looking at more repertoire based invitations rather than single offerings probably much easier within the musical realm challenging but not impossible for um, theatre opera and uh, with dance companies so how the, the, the makeup of that invitation is made artistically, I think, can be joined up with what uh, we're encouraging artists to do in terms of the very practical uh, way of getting here. 
There's an interesting point there in terms of programming, which we'd like to pick up on on later. Um, but in terms of, you quite rightly sort of demonstrated how in your invitations with artists, how you can encourage them to perhaps travel in a more environmentally conscious way. But with audiences, what, how can you meaningfully change their behavior? Um, persuasion. Um, I think, you know, we have a great platform. We have a very engaged audience base. Um, a large percentage of our audience is actually from the city and from the uh, near environment of the city. Um, and a relatively small percentage are from overseas. I think about 11 or 12 percent um, on most years. But, you know, there are things. What One idea might be to encourage um, a levy if you've travelled uh, in a certain way uh, to come to the opera, you know, and that could be it could be a donation. We could go further and make it obligatory, you know, much like there are tariffs for uh, uh, theatre renovation or historical repairs. Um, or, but if it's on a voluntary basis, there could be a sliding scale. So, you know, you can make your own judgment, and if you can see, and there's a green calculator to say that, well, if you've flown in from New York to see one show for one night in Edinburgh. You know, that's a pretty hefty carbon footprint. And how do you feel about um, uh, the consequence of that choice? And are you willing to actually make a donation which would go to an offsetting fund? I know offsetting is hugely problematic, but I think the right scheme does offer a short-term uh, way of um, hitting some of these targets. So that might be uh, one solution. With the companies, um, I think we do it in the deal. If a company insists on flying and there is a viable uh, train route, we could um, um, factor that into the financial arrangements. That's very interesting. And Nadia, I want to come to you in just a moment about the British Museum's green policies. But Rafi, as someone who is selling into a festival, often with Edward Asperger, so what do you make of that idea of reducing the fee if you're traveling in a more environmentally conscious way? Actually, I love it, in fact, and I think unless there is these kind of drastic decisions in some ways and people taking the lead with this, things won't change, I think. And in fact, uh, it will make everybody think, including already I should say that artists are uh, thinking about this, many of the artists, many organizations. So it's not going to be a new thing, I think, for them. But um, my, uh, my main concern is um, uh, the, not everybody will be in equal standing uh, in terms of the artists uh, coming in because, you know, we know uh, that many um, countries like Germany or France, they're heavily subsidized by, by their government. And some of the organization there will have no problem in paying that levy. But there are many organizations from far afield that will not be able to pay. Um, well, our, uh, look at our system in the UK, if you like. Uh, in, we don't have much government uh, support. Uh, we do, but very little. Uh, it will affect them tremendously. It will affect some of the grassroots organizations. So I just wonder whether there could be uh, perhaps um, a fund to also mitigate that inequality because um, otherwise we're just gonna get certain type of artists all the time. Uh, because, I mean, I, another um, big issue is, um, which affected the UK, but immigration, 
I mean, to give you an example, we, we don't think about, uh, now with the COVID, it's quite uh, very important, but when we were working with, uh, on the tour of Yusundur, the Senegalese uh, singer, I mean, I, I was gobsmacked that they had to pay over £1,000 for, for each visa to come uh, to the UK. So we, we, you know, the British people, when we go abroad, when we take visa, which is quite low amount, people are complaining about that. But, you know, coming to the UK is very expensive too, to give you just an example. So there, I think we have to see the interconnectedness of the whole ecosystem of the art world. And we have to see how to arrange it because I don't think it will work on its own to do this. Um, but um, it's not an easy answer. To be honest, there isn't a simple solution. Uh, but you know, one thing that the COVID gave us is these platforms that we can uh, join in more digital conversation, uh, more uh, more conversation with colleagues to come up perhaps with an idea and solution. It's so easy to discuss. So I hope this di platforms of digital connection will help us come with better solutions um, globally. It's interesting, there was a piece in The Guardian this week about that uh, very point about visa costs being cost prohibitive for certain people from certain countries. Just to come back to the point about the environment, so Nadia, with the British Museum, I'm interested to know more about what measures you're putting in place to tackle this climate change debate. Well, um, I very much agree with Rafi. It's a very complex and difficult question. And unlike Roy's audiences, more than 70% of British Museum audiences come from overseas. So and not all of them can hop on Eurostar. So it's uh, really, sometimes we are, somebody might be in the UK just for a few days, or they might be on a tour of Europe, they're coming to London, they're bound to pop to the, to the British Museum. So we have to recognize that for us, that is an extremely important uh, audience. Also, it is important for other aspects, uh, for uh, actually income generating reasons, because they come, they stay, they, they go to cafes, restaurants, they actually shop, they buy books and souvenirs and mementos of their visit. So they're, they're extremely important. So uh, we have to keep that balance. I think the people will always want to be interested in coming to the British Museum. Um, finding uh, as green modes of transport as possible, I think we would all uh, want to see. On the other hand, as well, we organize some very important um, training programs for colleagues around the world. So we have a a renowned international training program every summer, a bit like overlapping with the festival. We have about 25 to 30 colleagues, and they have, let's say, mid-career curators from around the world, and mostly from places where there are fewer opportunities for them, who come to the British Museum for six weeks. They actually spend a couple of weeks at some of the regional museums from Scotland and, you know, across the UK, actually, across all three nations. And uh, to actually come and learn and practice and work with our colleagues. That has been tremendously important for us. Very difficult, as Rafi said, very often arranging for these visas. And I think that is, again, one of the things that we really want to continue to provide for our colleagues. Most of them, again, do not come from surrounding countries. So in terms of travel, we have to balance the actual benefit of uh, having such training programs, benefit of having our audiences, and actually environmental impact. We are very, very much aware. And I think um, a lot of travel, a lot of business travel, uh, a lot of meetings and seminars, I think we all learned that things can be done via Zoom as we are experiencing now. So we'll probably be doing a little bit more of that. So uh, less of the jet lag and then more, more of this. I'm just wondering how we're going to learn to network because 
Um, it's been quite interesting. Very recently, we had a meeting, and it was my counterparts from across uh, the UK. Uh, we met uh, via Zoom. Uh, normally, we would meet somewhere in the UK, be it in Glasgow, Manchester, London, or Cardiff, and uh, we would always chat. It was a very focused discussion. It's one of these uh, meetings that lasted for a few hours without a break, so that we can all actually get there in a day, usually by train uh, and return. And when we first did it over Zoom, uh, we know each other, we chatted, but we realized we were really missing that vital moment where we can pick up with each other in a few conversations. And actually, most of us traveled by train together. So that couple of hours in a meeting extended to many more hours. So whilst there are benefits to it, there are also uh, ways that we will need to find out how we can do these extra bits that we were able to do when we do meet face to face. I think that's a really good point. As, as Raphael was saying, so I think I, have, I haven't felt as connected as I have done with colleagues, both within the UK, Europe, worldwide, as I have done in, in recent months. But as you were saying, Nadia, what, what it's also demonstrated and uh, what all the digital performance has demonstrated is there's nothing as good as live. And that very visceral, tangible connection, whether it be with a colleague or an artist or an artifact, to be there in that place is the thing that I crave. And it is the thing that so far, whilst technology is an, an enabler, it hasn't created a space which generates that same level of connection. Absolutely agree. It's been tremendously helpful on many aspects. It can't really replace the real thing. And let's hope we don't lose that skill set and and able to naturally organically build up a rapport with people. Um, so the sooner we're out of lockdown, the better. <laughs> um, I mean, what you the said? only thing, Sorry. just a wild idea, but the only I completely agree with both with uh, both of you. But um, I'm just curious where um, augmented reality and virtual reality go will go. Because uh, I was just uh, reading, I haven't tried it myself, but um, there are now new meeting methods use, utilizing uh, augmented reality. And apparently you feel that you are talking to that person in your own space. And although the technology has not arrived yet, and within a meeting of let's say five or six people, um, apparently you can have separate conversations at the same time. So one of the problems of Zoom, I guess, like because only one person can speak at a time, more or less. And so I'm just curious where, how, uh, how the, well, Silicon Valley and all the technology companies will respond to this challenge, which I'm no doubt, no doubt they are working on such a solution, but couldn't agree more that live is the best thing in the world. I mean, I won't deny that. By the way, we are using Zoom for this podcast, but other video conferencing systems are available. Um, moving on, just, I just want to go back to the point, Nadia, you made um, about 70% of your audience is from abroad. Um, and it's and also the very pertinent point about how that not only just brings an audience to the British Museum, but other cultural elements in, in the city and in, and in the country, um, also going to cafes, hotels, um, various other contributions towards the economy and I think that's been recognized fair to say with the 1.57 billion that's been announced by the government um, but what more do you think not just British Museum but UK arts organizations in general could build up its local audience a bit better I think we all have been working with our local audiences quite a lot um, in various with schools for example in particular 
uh, audiences in Camden, which, which is um, actually our, our bar in London. Uh, so, so the engagement is actually very strong. I think what, what is going to happen now, I think, with a few tourists, uh, maybe uh, the, the, the pace of visiting, as we said, it will become a little bit more relaxed, it'll be a, a bit slower. So our local audiences who might have popped in and realized there was a huge queue around the block to come in, thought like, well, I'm not going to bother now. Now when they can actually walk in and have the place to themselves, hopefully they, they will be encouraged to come in, in huge numbers. And is that viable financially? Whilst it's, you know, we could say, um, artistically or as an experience, it's going to be better to have fewer people, uh, fewer people at these ex exhibitions. Is it actually a viable business model to have fewer people attending? Uh, unfortunately not. And I'm sure you would have, everything you, we read these days and all these uh, conversations that we hear, everybody actually mentions that financial sustainability is a huge, huge issue for all of us because you do actually need uh, you know, reasonable numbers of people who would be spending money uh, in order to actually ma make things work. Because all of us have been extremely good to top up the uh, grant in aid that we received from the government, which is a small portion of our funding. So we all actually learned how to do that. We've been very successful, and that is why we actually find ourselves in a very tricky situation now. When the museum is closed, you can't realize any of that. You can't actually charge you, although we are free, uh, free to enter, uh, we can charge for temporary charge for some temporary exhibitions and as i said uh, cafes and um, uh, and shops but also a lot of actually venue hire a lot of us museums use our, our fantastic buildings to enable others to actually have their events and that's been a very important income generating stream again with the museum closed that is actually not possible and i think when we go back when we reopen and we gently start to, to hopefully move back to, to more normal to what we know. I think there is also a question whether people will be prepared to go back in, in large numbers. So will we be able to have all these uh, events? Because maybe, uh, let's say, companies that will do that in the past, first of all, it might not actually be seen to be the right thing to do at the moment, uh, both from the you know, health perspective, but also whether people would want to do that, whether they will really feel safe to come in huge numbers. So it is actually quite a huge challenge. And I think this is a moment where probably financial models for the whole of the art sector has to be reviewed. And I think this is, I think we all thought it was wonderful news uh, that we heard about the uh, Chancellor announcing support for the art sector. But, uh, you know, that cannot be one off. We really have to think of more longer term what is going to be the, the model for the, for the sector. Yeah, and I think that's a very good point. Um, I mean, the arts in the UK is extremely resilient and has adapted to um, the financial models it's presented with. And now, of course, it's paying the cost for that, as you say, by adapting to having more revenue from other sources, such as venue hires, you say, and, and ticket sales. Um, just to bring back to the point about local audience, Roy, um, it'd be interesting to know what Edinburgh International Festival is doing on that front as well. Um, and also as a second point, um, this 1.57 billion, as, as we've all said, is, is, is very welcome. It, what Oliver Dowden, the Cultural Secretary, has also emphasised is that it's saving the crown jewels. So the likes of the Edinburgh National Festival, the likes of the British Museum, sounds like you guys are safe. But what about other arts organisations, <laughs> cultural organisations? Like, and, and I'm sure you engage with lots of what arts organisations in Edinburgh. Yeah, so I think, I mean, uh, the award is incredibly welcome news. Um, I think we all just need to see what the real detail is to see where the support is is uh, targeted to and quite what any T's and C's are around it. 
Um, we're very aware that we are um, a significant institution and so we need to ensure and what we have done during the, the course of this period is that our wider ecology, because we are only um, in a way uh, what you see in the shop window, but we're uh, supported by a vast array of artists fundamentally but also uh, a huge network of freelancers who may be artists, but they may be technicians, they may be artist liaison, there's agents. There's a, there's a whole economy beneath what you see in terms of the crown jewels. So we need to, be ensure, uh, need to ensure that support is also going um, in a significant way to support those areas of the ecology, because without those individuals, there are no crown jewels. Um, we will become, you know, uh, we will just be a storage facility because there'll be no nobody to actually create work and, and nobody to, to be able to um, service it in any meaningful sense. So, um, I, I, and I think um, partly that message uh, was received by government that it is that not only are the creative industries such a significant co contributor to uh, the, the, the UK uh, economy, but also the vast network, um, which is much more than who you see on stage or uh, a name on a show poster or uh, an exhibition. Um, in terms of our local audience, I mean, we have a great strength and we are and we value tremendously the fact that we have such a strong, loyal audience base uh, within the city and in Scotland and then further afield in the UK. Um, our main uh, effort at the moment is to ensure that we can survive because uh, so long as we survive, we can then uh, create programmes for audiences um, and we can look to present a programme of work um, next year and onwards. Um, we are trying to put some uh, small-scale activity uh, together for this August if the uh, conditions prevail and we're in the right, uh, the appropriate phase of um, coming out of lockdown. Um, because we just feel that we need to be able to demonstrate that all of these artists and this creativity is still there and it still needs uh, a moment and a stage. Uh, um, particularly for a city that is synonymous with festival and festivals. And of course, I, I reference all our uh, sister festivals in the city and indeed who are in uh, the summer season, but also there's uh, many festivals throughout the year in Edinburgh. So I think um, we, we, we will be taking, making particular efforts to ensure that we, we have a programme for that local audience we're not going to try and do this August a version of an Edinburgh International Festival. It will be some activity which hopefully will have a flavour and a resonance of, of what we are about. Well, that sounds really encouraging to be able to, as you, um, to the show that the fire is still burning. Um, Absolutely. Um, just to move on the discussion to um, everyone's favourite topic, Brexit, not at all divisive. Um, but also, semi-related to that, also nationalistic programming, because this will also have an impact on international cultural exchange. And, um, for example, we know that um, it, there was the Festival of Britain was announced pre-COVID in 2022 and celebrating all things British culture. Rafi, have you found, um, with the projects you're working on, that actually there's been more tendency to identify say for example an orchestra with the music from their country so for example a Finnish orchestra always performing Sibelius um, and do you see this as a trend going forward? Uh, well it's 
So it's quite a big topic. No, at the moment, I think the, the biggest trend we have is unpredictability. And uh, we, we are not exactly sure what, what, what will happen, if you like. And so we have to be nimble and adaptable to whatever comes next. But one thing is for sure that I see what that we see most at the moment is that um, because lots of local artists have suffered through this crisis, many of the organizations are trying to support and help the artists that are that they are close to, if you like. And I think that, um, that, that doesn't come from a nationalistic place, but that comes from a place of wanting to support the artists uh, that are there. And I believe that this will stay for some time and maybe this will be um, enhanced through collaboration with international artists. But I do believe that the importance of local has become even more important now, not only through climate change and COVID, but travel restrictions, anytime the, uh, the, the virus might spike up perhaps again. Um, so, um, so, no, I don't think that in the sense that you've explained that whether that's going to be uh, whether Sibelius will always be paid by uh, by by a Finnish orchestra, I, I they already do that, by the way. <laughs> but but uh, but I think um, in terms of localization will be ever more important. But in a in a in a different way, I still believe the international organization, the people that have an international outlook, will be able to utilize the localization in an international way, in a paradoxical sense. And I think that's where things uh, will be going. And, um, and I think it's a good thing, in fact, because the more uh, artists are supported locally, the more, um, and the more they collaborate internationally, I think there will be more audiences growing uh, in different parts. And in the end, um, I believe that the, uh, uh, the audiences will grow uh, for arts as a result. Because the, one of the best conduits for art uh, in a particular uh, location is the artists themselves in that location. Um, so I, I actually feel it's uh, really exciting. Uh, what I wouldn't want there to be seen, as you were saying, uh, this nationalistic approach that we will only do this or we will only do that. Uh, I think that's, uh, uh, that, that's not preferable. I think that's a very interesting point. I mean, nationalism can have negative connotations, but also the way you framed it, I think, um, is very encouraging. It should be celebrated. So, for example, celebrating the local artists. I know, for example, the Sydney Festival in next year in January 21 are only engaging Australian artists, but they're, they're not doing that as a closed borders type way. They're doing it in a way to celebrate the amazing talent they have on display. Um, Nadia, with British Museum, of course, you've got objects from around the world. Internationalism is not going to be a problem then. No. Well, our nation is the world. You know, as I said, collections, funds, human achievement across the globe and across millennia. You know, the majority of visitors are international and our staff are actually very international. So it is really absolutely at the core of everything we do, you know, from the collection to staff to people who visit to audiences. So I think that is 
are not very likely to change. We might be getting more audiences locally, but I think internationalism really stays at the core of everything we do. Well, that's fantastic to hear. And um, sorry to jump around a bit, but then just, just to come back to the Brexit point, would that affect, how is that going to affect the British Museum, if at all? Well, I mean, the UE is actually, they are our nearest neighbours. So it's very, an extremely important market. Uh, let's say at the moment, there are two museum exhibitions in Spain, and we have a fantastic collaboration with La Caixa Forum. So at any one time, there is a BM exhibition in Spain, which is absolutely fantastic because it's bringing BM collections to Spanish audiences. Not everybody can come to London. And I think that is very, very important. And our collaborations with colleagues from across the EU, extremely important, both scholarly in terms of research, uh, collaborations. We're actually working on a project at the moment with colleagues from Italy, Germany, France, and the Netherlands. So it is a, a, a joined up EU project and we're working together um, with our colleagues in Egypt. So I think the, the collaborative approach in a museum world is absolutely something that will continue. And we just hope that whatever the rules and regulations are agreed in the moment will enable us to continue to do so. May I just pick up on that uh, one thing, Nadia, just, and, and to Roy, I, I'm just curious to know what you think about the, um, uh, the physical space and the idea of how the, because of course, British Museum uh, is a, like the space is so important to your brand and who you are. Um, similarly, in Edinburgh, there's so many venues, including the Usher Hall, the Festival Theatre, so important. And where do you see this, like, the, the, do you think the importance of the physical venue will continue to be as important? Or do you think there might be changes to the way people perceive things? Uh, and this is like, I was inspired by what you just said before, because um, Nadia, it was that uh, you were saying that uh, whether the audiences will come to the museum now and how long will it take to the levels that they come. Similarly, in, in physical venues, the same thing will happen. And so I'm just thinking whether we have to think of different way of presenting um, our assets. Um, I'm just curious. Well, I, I think... Uh... Rafi, you're absolutely right. I think the museum, the building, will continue to be important. Um, but the way we have worked for years, for decades, is we work with colleagues across the world and we work in those countries. So I think the idea of sharing our collections through loans, through touring exhibitions, uh, I think it is very important because that is a way of actually taking the collections to audiences around the world. Because we said not everybody in the past was able to come to London. And if the situation changes in a way that people will travel less, we will really have to address that. I think since the lockdown, our colleagues in the digital team have made tremendous uh, effort to actually bring collections online. So there are more than 4 million objects available to view online. They're very, you know, one can actually read a lot about them. There are various blogs, there are uh, uh, research backgrounds. And I think that is, that's been very, very uh, uh, useful. And what we've noticed is there's so many. Um, let's say viewers from Italy and Spain in particular, when their lockdown uh, you know, situations were let's be probably stricter than here. So that is available to audiences across the world. And although you might think of us as, you know, we've been around for more than 260 years and we do things maybe in a slightly old fashioned way. We also did something I thought was tremendously uh, adventurous and it, will, it turned out to be pioneering about 10 years ago. 
uh, uh, the British Museum, together with BBC, created a radio series called History of the World in 100 Objects. And that was really, we were talking, it was a history using uh, British Museum objects and actually showing what was happening at a particular moment in history across the world. So you can actually see what actually happened in the Middle East and uh, China and let's say Latin America and Europe in 15th century. It was absolutely fantastic and electrifying. And there were millions and millions of um, uh, uh, downloads happening on the website. What was very interesting, it was actually a radio series. So what they had at the time, there's so many people who actually hadn't been to the museum, but they were actually driving to work in the UK saying, oh, wow, that sounds really interesting. Because our then director would describe each object that you could actually see. And that was very interesting. So that was 10 years ago, that was 2010. And that radio series actually provoked so many requests from uh, visitors around the world. They would come to the BM and said, where is that exhibition? So we actually created a, to, to guide people because all the objects were in their own places. The interest was so huge that in the end, we created a touring exhibition, A History of the World in 100 Objects, uh, which has been to 11 venues and had been seen more than 2 million people across the world. And it has been really tremendously successful because what we did there was uh, taking the story from the oldest object in collection, which is about 2 million years uh, old, which is a hand axe, and bringing it to the present moment in each of these venues. So the object, which we call Object 101, was contributed by the hosting venue. And it was anything from, um, I remember one of the first ones in, in the Gulf, it was a car designed by a young engineering student for people who can't uh, have use of their arms so that they could actually drive a car, maybe just using their feet, uh, to actually one in Australia where a combination of the latest technology using antenna to observe space and the actually crafts of the people who've been living there for tens of thousands of years, decorating this to actually bring, bring it to that moment, to let's say a QR code, the whole exhibition contained in a QR code to tell it. So I think we've been doing things in a very different way. And I think the BM will, just to come back to your question, the BM will stay. It will be important to go to that uh, wonderful place and wonderful building because we all so much connect with that. You know, our members, our devoted members who actually know the place and, you know, who come there very often, you know, we, we expect to, to see them again. But we will really look to continue to take our uh, collections to audiences around the world. I think that's a fantastic example of um, internationalism through a different medium and utilising radio and building your audience organically that way. Um, a fantastic concept. Roy, with Edinburgh, just picking up from Rafferty Point, are there any synergies there and also how about the importance of the physical space as well? I think it's a, it's a really interesting provocation. Um, we have a range of great venues in, in Edinburgh, but they are probably all of a fairly traditional uh, conceit, which happens to be perfect for a concert, for an opera, uh, for a large-scale dance performance and some lovely playhouses. Edinburgh doesn't really have that space which is other. Um, and so whilst the suite of venues that we are able to program into um, are perfect for their conceit, they are very formal. And I think that formality might also be a barrier for some audiences and indeed how we might experiment and play with presenting work. So I think there's an interesting dynamic about uh, venues. 
whilst of course we all appreciate the acoustics of a great concert hall, um, the trappings that go with that and perhaps the etiquette that that sort of space demands, is that at the exclusion of another type of performance or another type of audience who might want to um, experience that? So I think um, physical spaces and the tradition of venues um, across the piece is, is really interesting. And uh, for, for and, and I guess in August, there are all sorts of um, new spaces created, but most of them are trying to replicate in some sense uh, a theatre space. You know, they're kind of studios that end on, some are bigger, some are smaller. But there isn't really that more universal space being created or a space that might accommodate a different type of performance um, or, or program. And I think that's probably something that we really need to consider, um, particularly as audiences change. And I think we're very well aware that some art forms, um, the, the uh, demographic is in a particular um, age group. And if we really um, believe in the universality of some of these uh, performers, then we need to try and look at ways of encouraging uh, different audiences to come in. But I think it's also through programming. So it's not just the built environment. And I think through programming, it's probably our strongest way to, to, to address some of that. And just to the, the, the point about um, Brexit and internationalism versus nationalism, I think absolutely now is the time to be going even further um, down the internationalist line. I think our, um, the greatest point of interest is the point of difference and the, the real excitement and discovery is made in meeting points something from over there coming here and meeting in a different environment. I think that's where we uh, find excitement and discover something new. And it's where discussion and debate really can take hold. And particularly in a festival context where everything is so compressed, you know, it is a real, um, you are in the heat of the moment and, and they're, they're hard moments to actually engineer or create you have to kind of just put everything together and see what happens. And so if anything, I would say now's the time that we should be, be uh, making even more generous invitations, being even more ambitious about um, the, the, the inhabitants of the globe and where we might find the artists who will um, give us a particular perspective on the world and uh, our way of being. I think that's um, a fantastic mantra to also conclude on. Many thanks again for joining us, Nadia, Roy and Rafi. Thank you also to our producer, Fiona Livingston, and sound editor, Merlin Thomas. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes from The Culture Bar, where we explore topics ranging from art sponsorship to the importance of a Green New Deal and how the arts and culture might be affected. See you soon. The Culture Bar. Find us on SoundCloud, Podbean, iTunes and all good podcast sites.